On March 14th, His Excellency Dr. Dino Pati Jalal, the Indonesian Ambassador to the United States, spoke on the changing geopolitics in the Asia-Pacific. He was joined by Kennedy School professors Nicholas Burns and Anthony Sage. The event was co-sponsored by the Center for International Development and the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School. For more information about the Ash Center's news, events, and research, please visit www.ash.harvard.edu. So good afternoon, everybody. Uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome you all here this afternoon for this discussion about the changing geopolitics in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, it's been the focus, of course, of a lot of attention uh, with what some call uh, President Obama's pivot to Asia. Others call it a pirouette, and some call it rebalancing. I don't know what the correct term is, but that's something we'll perhaps uh, be enlightened on. Of course, also what has been in the press a lot recently has been the territorial assertions uh, of China and the questions of sovereignty in a number of the areas there and disputes with a number of its neighbors. And, of course, most recently, uh, all the issues around uh, North Korea's uh, diplomat um, nuclear diplomacy, or rather perhaps lack of diplomacy. So it's obviously something which is well in the news, and there's also been, over time, talk of an Asian century this century. My own personal view, uh, maybe to be more uh, uh, diffident to start off with, is I don't think there is an Asian century uh, coming up. And I think it's for a number of reasons. There's not really an effective mechanism, such as the European Union, which was able to pull uh, Europe together after the Second World War. This really still hasn't emerged. I don't think the ASEAN countries fulfill that entirely, and I don't think ASEAN plus three does entirely. So that's one set of issues that has to be resolved and dealt with. Also, there's the question of do the countries throughout the region have shared principles about law, about rights, about the relationship of state to society? Again, something which I think is difficult to accommodate if we're talking about an Asian century uh, in terms of shared values and shared principles. Also, as I said before, there's the existing antagonisms uh, that persist throughout uh, the region. But I think what is very important today, and we're very lucky to have with us uh, Ambassador Jalal uh, with us, because I think one of the most important voices throughout this region that does not get heard enough in uh, public forum and public discussion is Indonesia's perception. And we all know there's been remarkable developments over the last decade in Indonesia, a remarkable transition uh, from its authoritarian, soft, hard, whichever adjective you would like to put to that, into what is a thriving democracy and really a model uh, for many around the world in a multicultural and pluralistic environment. I think there the attainments have been nothing short of tremendous. And I think Indonesia is poised to take a much more important role on the stage. So as I said, we're very lucky uh, to have Indonesia's ambassador to the United States uh, with us. Uh, he's received education in India, in Canada. He has a PhD from the LSE, so he's also a global citizen as well as being a, a representative for Indonesia. Uh, he's been a long-time uh, servant uh, to Indonesia in the foreign ministry, as was his father before him. Um, I suppose probably one of the first times I came across the ambassador was when he was uh, as a special staff uh, to the president uh, and also a speechwriter 
uh, for the president for four or five years and uh, has been here uh, since uh, 2010 as the ambassador and has brought a lot more life into the community uh, in Washington and around Indonesia in that time has started a number uh, of initiatives, including the U.S.-Indonesia Comprehensive uh, Partnership, which, as I understand, has been quite successful. And then secondly, to make comments on that, we're very lucky to have our own uh, Professor Nicholas Burns, who is the Sultan Oman Professor of International Relations here, and also directs the uh, program on the future of diplomacy uh, here at the Kennedy School. Nick, as many as you know, also has outstanding service uh, for the U.S. government over a career uh, extending beyond 20 years, deep engagement in a lot of these global issues and discussions, and tremendous experience. So I think we're really lucky today to be able to welcome two outstanding people to come and discuss this question, the dear geopolitics of the region. We will first uh, invite the ambassador to say a few words and then ask Professor Burns to make some comments in reply and then we'll open up uh, to the floor to questions and comments. So please, Ambassador. Thank you, Tony, for that kind introduction, and thank you also for your leadership and your contribution to studies on Indonesia. Tony uh, and his team has produced excellent work uh, on Indonesia, and last time I met you coming out with uh, a new analysis, and I don't know when that is coming out, but... About two months' time. Okay, and I've been losing, losing a lot of sleep, uh, hoping that uh, <laughs> I get to read it soon. Make sure you <laughs> and uh, thank you very much, uh, Nicholas uh, Burns, for, for being here. It's a great honor. Uh, when I was in Jakarta, uh, we knew you to be one of the stars at the State Department, and it's great finally to be able to, to, to meet with you, and I hope to be able to continue this relationship. Now, today I want to talk about the changing geopolitics in the uh, Asia-Pacific. I want to talk a little bit about how it was before, uh, what has changed, and what, uh, from Indonesia's perspective, we hope to see uh, in the future. Now, let me begin about with uh, how Asia was uh, in the past. Uh, now, uh, Asia in the past few decades ago had a totally different feel to it. You know, Southeast Asia uh, was divided, uh, Asia was divided. Uh, it was polarized and it was ideological. Uh, regional events were rigid uh, and developments were slow uh, to take place. Uh, Indonesia-China relations uh, were frozen for many decades uh, until uh, it was uh, normalized again in the mid-1990s. Uh, ASEAN also uh, had a good start in 67, but it was slow to develop until it picked up speed at the end of uh, the 1990s with the creation of the ASEAN uh, 10. Um, and relationship was quite ideological. Uh, ideological content in diplomacy was quite strong, uh, and, and including with uh, Indonesia. Uh, as well. Uh, at that time, there were only few democracies. Uh, I note uh, Prime Minister Nakasone of Japan once said that Japan, uh, during his time, felt alone uh, as a democracy uh, in East Asia. And uh, throughout much of Asia, you had the phenomenon of strong state. Yeah? A strong state in the sense that the state was a lot more stronger than civil uh, society. You know, you felt this in Indonesia, uh, you definitely felt this in China, uh, in Vietnam, in South Korea, uh, in Myanmar, in Singapore, in Brunei, in <coughs> Mongolia, and in other places. The phenomenon of strong state was very much felt throughout the region. And Asia experienced decades of 
what I would call cruelty. You know, uh, you know, a few decades ago uh, there were a lot of cruel uh, uh, things happening throughout in, uh, throughout Asia. In Indonesia itself, uh, we had the uh, events in 1965 after the abortive uh, communist coup, uh, and hundreds of thousands supposedly uh, uh, were uh, victimized. Uh, in East Timor, we had a lot of uh, ugly uh, uh, episodes. Uh, you had uh, genocide in Cambodia. Vietnam War and so on and so on. But throughout Asia, uh, we had these uh, a lot of cruel episodes. And perhaps it's easier in those days to be uh, cruel because there was no CNN and there was no uh, social media. And there was this uh, diplomatic culture where you would uh, close your eyes, yeah, uh, uh, a non interventionist uh, attitudes uh, when things happen uh, uh, nearby. Uh, I remember during the uh, Cambodian uh, uh, genocide. Uh, you know, everybody knew bad things were going on there, but uh, ASEAN was relatively quiet about it. Uh, and in fact, it was not until the recent ASEAN summit in Cambodia, uh, where uh, I attended, uh, I flew there, and we had a conversation with uh, the president and the uh, you know, ministers. And we looked at uh, how Cambodia had turned out, and some of us had visited the uh, museum of uh, uh, the genocide uh, museum, and we said, well, you know, it's probably the right thing that Vietnam uh, intervened in Cambodia at the time. Although in the 70s, you would never hear an ASEAN diplomat saying uh, something uh, like that, right? Um, and at that time, uh, in Asia, the only emerging power of global significance were in Asia was only one, Japan. Yeah. Uh, China, Indonesia, India were not there yet. Uh, and in Southeast Asia, the main extra-regional powers of significance uh, were Japan and the United States. Right? So these were more or less uh, uh, some features of the uh, geopolitics in Asia uh, in the past. Today, these things have changed. Right? Um, the geopolitical landscape has evolved, uh, and uh, there are a number of changes that has happened in the last decade or two that has completely changed uh, the uh, face of uh, and power relationships in Asia. Uh, let me enumerate them. Right? First, I think the most important for us is that for the first time, major relationships among the major powers are stable, right? And this is important because uh, in our history, there's always a time when somebody, one or two of the major powers are just fighting among one another or somebody else, and we're often at the receiving uh, end uh, of it as well. Um, and the dictum is that so long as the relationships among the major powers are stable and cooperative, relatively, uh, despite what happens between China and Japan recently, uh, then things are good for the region uh, overall. So that is a good development. Uh, next, uh, relationships across the board, we would say, except maybe for North Korea, have been de-ideologized. Yeah? Uh, the ideological content in diplomatic relations uh, has been uh, you know, minimized or even erased. Uh, in Indonesia, ideology is no longer a... Uh, uh, 
uh, a factor. We don't seek to apa, uh, Pancasila the world, you know. Uh, my Indonesian fans would, would know what it means. Uh, China's relationship with region, Vietnam's relationship with region, and so on and so on. Uh, uh, um, you don't see ideological content anymore. What you see is national interest, right? So national interest over ideology has begun to uh, dominate uh, relations in Asia uh, Pacific. What you also see is a significant realignment of interests. Right? Now, what does that mean? Uh, this is something that we noticed uh, after 9-11. Right? After 9-11, uh, the Cold War had ended. Uh, you had a new world. You don't know what it's called yet. Uh, but then uh, it was 9-11, and in Indonesia, in Bali, we had the Bali bomb. Right? And we were facing terrorism, and then our neighbors were also facing the same in, in the Philippines, in Pakistan, India, and other places. And we say, look, this doesn't pit countries against one another. This actually makes countries allies because they face a common enemy, which was uh, terrorism. Uh, another issue, for example, was natural disasters. Right? Uh, when we had the tsunami in 2004, uh, you know what happened? Uh, we were so paralyzed that we said, okay, let's open up the country. And what did we see? We saw the U.S. Uh, uh, fleet uh, uh, aircraft carrier, I think the name was Lincoln, if I'm not mistaken, came to help us with, with tsunami. And uh, they were working in a whole structure uh, uh, under the TNI command, along with the Chinese, with the Australians, with the Singaporeans, with the Malaysians, with the Mexicans, with the Indians, right? But all these countries said that, look, we are working together, we are facing a common challenge, which is helping the Indonesians and the Chinese uh, survive the, the tsunami. Uh, and all these issues, terrorism, uh, natural disasters, transnational crimes, diseases, you know, fighting uh, the H5N1, uh, SARS, and so on and so on, uh, produce a realignment of interests that produce different relationships between countries that was not there uh, before. Uh, for Indonesia, this was significant because uh, there was something that we got very clear, uh, including with the United States. That is the dictum that keeping Indonesia united is the best insurance for regional stability and security. Now, Indonesians had been a bit paranoid before. Uh, there was this uh, conspiracy theory or assumptions that, look, you know, perhaps uh, uh, these uh, powers wanted to break up Indonesia, right? Uh, because from the experience of the 60s and, and, and so on. But uh, what happened was a realignment of interest whereby the major powers, and in fact the countries and regions said that Indonesia is much better off united, and the region is much better off because of it, if Indonesia is united. The next uh, change is that, yes, we saw conflicts in the South China Sea, uh, in the East China Sea, and so on. But for many of us, the threats became much more internal than external. And this is particularly true for Indonesia, and I suspect this is true for many other countries in the region. And the threats not, were not just becoming more internal, but they were more comprehensive. Yeah? Uh, yes, we had separatist threats uh, uh, still uh, in, in Aceh, which was resolved later, and in Papua. But uh, again, the nature of the issues becoming more comprehensive. The real threats for Indonesia's well-being and security were corruption, climate change, marginalization, inequity, terrorism, extremism, ethnic conflicts, religious frictions, food price. In all these things, there were a lot of it are just internal and domestic. Right. Um, the next change is that, in contrast to what Japanese Prime Minister Nakatsuni said, that 
Japan was alone as democracy. Democracies are proliferating throughout uh, Asia. And, you know, this really changed the political landscape and, again, uh, affected the geopolitical landscape uh, uh, because of it. Uh, Indonesia became the last country in the third wave of democracies in the 20th century when we became, uh, when President Suarte stepped down and we had our first elections in 1999 and we became the third largest democracy in the world after India and uh, the United States. The next uh, change is that there is now a strong regionalism in Southeast Asia. And Southeast Asia now is a coherent geopolitical and geoeconomic space. Uh, it's no longer a divided region as it was uh, during the bipolarity uh, of uh, the previous uh, uh, decades. Uh, ASEAN countries now aspire to achieve ASEAN community uh, by uh, 2015, uh, which is uh, two years uh, from now. Uh, and um, uh, ASEAN has uh, introduced the ASEAN Charter, uh, which changed the way the organization has performed. And I think most importantly, ASEAN now is an ASEAN 10, which means everybody, all the countries in Southeast Asia, except Timor-Leste, is part of one regional organization, no longer divided. Right? The next change, and I think this is one of the most important geopolitical development in Asia, is China's inroad into Southeast Asia. Right? Uh, this is uh, actually very important. You know, for an Indonesian, when I got into the Foreign Service and when I was in college, we used to think of China as a country far away in the north, you know, uh, thousands of miles away, you know. Uh, but for some reason now, uh, with China's uh, uh, claiming borders in Natuna uh, and so on and so on, uh, China yeah, is actually next door neighbor, <laughs> right? No longer a country all that far away up in the north, right? Uh, again, this is a, you know, a new thing for us. Uh, I don't know how comfortable we are with, the, with, with this, uh, but uh, definitely by, by far uh, China's inroad into Southeast Asia is extremely uh, uh, important uh, geopolitical uh, development. Um, one example uh, was that uh, on trade, uh, we used to think that our three major trading partners were the United States, Japan, and Europe. Right? For decades, this was the case, and China was nowhere to be seen. Right? Uh, but now, uh, our trade with the United States is 26 billion, with China is over 50 billion, twice it. Right? And this is a pattern that is happening in most other countries. Uh, and, and China has been very, very aggressive in expanding into Southeast Asia with, uh, with soft power, you know, uh, the, the, the charm offensive. Uh, they're not behaving like the big brother, they're behaving like uh, the brother or the good brother. You know, there was a time when they said that anything you want, we give. You know, when we had the ASEAN-China free trade agreement being attacked by our politicians, China said, look, we understand your domestic politics. Whatever you want to do, we give. We send our officials uh, and just ask, and then uh, we give it to you. I was just uh, uh, recently in, in Samoa, uh, just a few days ago, uh, and again, in, even in Pacific, the talk in the Pacific was about China. I was in American Samoa, and the officials were talking about the independent Samoa, the West Samoa, where the Chinese were building infrastructures and government offices to the point that the United States government felt compelled to give a $50 million hospital 
not to the American Samoa, but to the Western Samoa, uh, to compete with the Chinese uh, uh, influence. And in Fiji too, which has been sanctioned by the U.S. due to the uh, political situation there, uh, Fijians and chi China are establishing close relations, including training of military, and so on and so on. But uh, but uh, China has been very assertive in raising its diplomatic profile, in increasing its economic engagement with, uh, with, with Asia. And the next uh, thing that is different about Asia's geopolitics is the rise of emerging powers. Right? Uh, again, as I said, in the past, it was only Japan and an Asian power that is of global significance. Now you have China, uh, which is bound to overtake, uh, and I'll say, the United States in terms of economic uh, uh, economic size, uh, India, uh, Indonesia in, in Southeast Asia, South Korea, uh, and uh, so on. Uh, with all this, the weight of the region feels different now. And we feel that there are a lot more diplomatic options uh, than before because of the rise of these emerging powers. Uh, and this is why Indonesia, for example, is coming out with uh, a new doctrine called All Directions Foreign Policy, which means, yes, we want to be close with the West, but we want to be close with the East, we want to be close with the South, we want to be close to the North as well. Engagement everywhere, right? But this is only because we want to adjust to the new strategic reality where there's a rise of emerging powers. And in concomitant with this, uh, we are seeing a very interesting phenomenon, which is the proliferation, proliferation of strategic partnerships or maybe the better term, the more soft term, comprehensive partnerships. Mm -hmm. In Indonesia, when it becomes too sensitive, uh, uh, we call it comprehensive partnership. With the United States, for example, if we, had, we were to call it strategic partnership, there would, might be political complications at home, so we call it comprehensive partnerships, and no one uh, protests, right? <laughs> Everyone accepts, right? So, but this rise of prolifer uh, the proliferation of partnerships throughout Asia is just phenomenal. We haven't seen anything like this before. In Indonesia, for example, we had only one before uh, about a decade ago, right? And uh, before that, none, right? But in the last uh, six years, we've had about a dozen, and including with all the major powers. We have a comprehensive partnership with the United States. We have strategic partnerships with India and China and Russia. And we have comprehensive partnerships with uh, Australia. Uh, and also with South Korea, yeah. Uh, but it's just, uh, uh, what do you call it? It's just growing very fast. And it's not just between Indonesia and these countries. Among these countries, you see uh, the emergence of uh, partnerships. Now, you may say, look, these partnerships, you know, they're, they're not of high quality. Sometimes it's just by name and so on and so on. But I, I, I agree that it, that may be the case, that uh, it's... it's uh, in, the intensity may, may vary, but the fact that they relate to one another as in a partnership relationship suggests that relationships are changing. And the fact is that economic relationships between these uh, powers uh, in the context of the new partnerships are rising. Uh, Indonesia's trade uh, with uh, fellow uh, Southeast Asian countries, with fellow uh, with China, as I said, with India, with South Korea, with Turkey, with Brazil, with uh, South Africa, are all rising, right? So I would say that the new economic space and diplomatic space being created out of these partnerships is one of the most important phenomenon in the Asia Pacific. Now this is significant because, look, I, you know, I've been 
working in Washington DC in the last two years and uh, you know I realized what when Washington looks at the world you the first thing that you see is alliances right uh, alliances are very important in the strategic culture of the United States but in Asia right uh, uh, many or most do not think in terms of alliances you know Indonesia don't think in terms of alliances we can't because we constitutionally and uh, prohibited to enter into alliances. And most of Asian countries, including China, they don't look for uh, you know, alliances. So they look for partnerships. And this is why I say this, uh, the partnerships is a new and interesting uh, phenomenon. And I'm glad that uh, in uh, uh, America's pivot policy, they identify alliances, and beyond that, they have to get into the partnerships, which means America has to also get into the game. Uh, into creating diplomatic, new diplomatic space with these emerging powers. Uh, the, the last thing that uh, uh, I would note in terms of geopolitical shifts or change in Asia is the rise of uh, uh, confidence. Uh, again, this is something new. You know, I'm 47 years old, and I've never seen confidence in Indonesia that I see now. You know, there's a recent poll that found that 85% of Indonesians despite of what they think of the politicians, the parliament, the president, the political parties, 85% of Indonesians believe that we are on the right track and that we have a right system, right? Uh, and uh, this is something that you see also in, in China and India. There was a poll recently taken by uh, a French uh, political institute. Uh, they surveyed the youth uh, across the world and asked them what they think about globalization. You know what countries where the youth are most favorable to globalization. They think that globalization is good for them and is positive for their development. China, 91%, right? India, 89%, right? Brazil and South Africa in the high 80s uh, as well. Uh, Greece is about 49%, I think, very low, right? But, you know, this rise of confidence among the youth uh, uh, in, in, and especially uh, uh, in, among societies in Asia is something very, very uh, new. Uh, and I think it's very true what President Obama said that China, for example, is no longer aiming to catch up uh, to the United States. You know, China is aiming to uh, uh, beat the United States, uh, to, to be number one. And China's game is to be number one in doing the Olympics, in doing the, uh, what do you call it, uh, Expo, uh, in building the highest buildings uh, and innovation and so on. The game has changed. Yeah. Why? Because there's so much confidence now among uh, these countries. Uh, a couple more. Um, I mentioned earlier in the past there was an era of strong state. Uh, now it's the other way around, actually. Uh, now uh, there's been such strong growth of civil societies that change the internal political makeup of states, and that affects the, their foreign policy uh, behavior as well. And I, you see this in many countries, including in China, where you still have strong state, but you see a very strong growth of uh, civil society in China, despite, despite the prominence of the Chinese Communist uh, Party. But in Indonesia, you definitely see this. You know, the civil society is so strong uh, in, in Indonesia that uh, we have come to a point whereby even where the political elites bicker uh, and can't agree to one another, the country functions, the economy grows because our entrepreneurs, our middle class, our civil society, our mass organizations 
uh, are strong. In fact, this is why I noticed in Thailand, uh, they had uh, in the last couple of years uh, back and forth uh, political infighting and near paralysis uh, between the reds and the yellows, right? Uh, and even uh, coup d'etat and so on. But what happened, Thailand's economy continues to grow, right? Which means for some reason they have found a way to decouple economic growth from these political infighting uh, in the Thailand. This has been a production of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School.